In the name of God, dancing in the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's almost 400 words in today's Gospel reading, and Jesus' name barely comes up and only in passing at that. That's never a good sign. Today's Gospel of the Lord is Mark's rather lengthy digression, a digression about a birthday party from hell. Everything about this story is so tragic, not just for the obvious reason, the gruesome, violent death, of John the Baptist and his head on a platter, nice Sunday summer reading. But the story caves in to all the usual norms. The false promises, oaths, and ideas about truth that we stake our lives on and that we sometimes stake our church on. And the high regard we have for our own reputations over against the very lives of other people. Mark's story is diminishing and barbarian and grim, where, in my imagination, it could have been prophetic and forward-looking and enlightened. In my imagination, King Herod put forth an invitation that, if properly seized upon, just might have shaken up the sexual and power politics of his day and maybe even have hastened the day that is now before us, the good day, when women are moving from being the pawns of power brokers to being the power brokers themselves. Herod hands young what's-her-name, call her daughter of Herodias, call her Salome, call her the dancing girl, whatever, Herod hands her the opportunity of a lifetime on a silver platter and she blows it. Ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it. Whatever you ask me, I will give you even half of my kingdom. And what does she do? She goes and asks her mother what she should do. I'm dying whenever I read this text. What self-respecting teenager asks her mother what she should do? Especially a mother like hers. This is not a high watermark in biblical relationships between mothers and daughters, really. What was this teenager thinking? No one else at the party she could have asked? In my mind, the young girl missed the opportunity to tell Herod, half of your kingdom? Sure, King Herod, I'll take it. And since you asked, I'll tell you what else I want. You're one sloppy drunk making ridiculous solemn oaths like this. So you're getting into a 12-step program. I'm letting John the Baptist out of jail so he can advise me on how to run my half of the kingdom because I'd like to be remembered throughout history for something other than tabletop dancing at birthday parties. <laughs> Forgive my anachronistic fantasizing, but it's summertime and the digressions are easy. And it's a momentary break from a world as remote as this text might seem, a world that is still far too diminishing and barbarian and grim. Indeed, this text is closer to us than we think. We can recoil understandably from the imagery of a head on a platter, but closer to home, the guillotine was used for the death penalty in France until the practice was abolished in 1981. To put that date in context, that's more than a decade after the Beatles split up. 
And strangely, the guillotine takes its name from the French physician who opposed the death penalty, but proposed the use of such a device for causing a more humane and painless death. And who among us thinks of a humane and painless death when we confront horrific headlines of beheading all too frequently today, recently as close to home as Lyon? The text moves even closer to us, though, when we consider the many metaphorical ways that we lose our heads and our behavior, in turn, can cause heads to roll. No shortage of idiomatic expressions come from this particular horrific and historic method of punishment. As Kipling begins his famous poem, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. To save his honor and his reputation as a manly man, King Herod first lost his head figuratively, and then so did John the Baptist, literally. And so our real confrontation today is not horrific or historic stories of beheading, nor is it the cruel and inhumane practice of capital punishment, as important as that subject is. Our confrontation and starting point is always to look within. To look within and to visit all the ways that we are capable of severing community and cutting off each other's spirit, simply because we don't know how to confront conflict or disagreement so often without losing our heads. Because the truth is, we can be good and kind and decent people, and we are, and we can still be petty, mean, or cruel on a dime. It's an ongoing and lifelong look, the look within. And since we don't hear a word from Jesus today, we can look elsewhere for his wisdom to the Sermon on the Mount, where he taught about the kinship between anger and murder and the place from which it all begins and resides and moves out, the human heart. A few days ago, the Confederate flag comes down in South Carolina amid cheers and refrains of thank you, Jesus, an external and important victory. But the longer battle is always the one where walls around hearts come down, one by one, away from the television cameras. I've learned that awareness is the first step to love, that awareness is the first step to change, that awareness is the first step to justice. Looking within is the practice of cultivating awareness. Awareness that we can be good and kind and decent people and still be petty, mean, or cruel. That awareness is the starting place to bridge building between any two people. Awareness that we've lost our heads is the first step to an apology to the person wronged. An apology received by the person who has been wronged is the beginning of reconciliation. To refuse to give or to receive an apology is to lose your head to pride or ego or to revenge. It is to cut off your head from your heart, the residing place of love and transformation. Awareness that we've lost our heads to the nostalgia and ways of the past is the first step for moving into the present and into the future. The General Convention of the Episcopal Church recently convened and elected the first ever black presiding bishop, having elected nine years ago the first ever 
female presiding bishop, neither election happened on the basis of gender or color or race or because it was time, but because each was the most qualified person, the most poised to lead the church forward. The convention also dramatically moved into the future by removing the canon or church law regarding the language of marriage to replace man and woman with the gender neutral word couple. You can only imagine the lengthy debates on the canons in the constitutional process, but my favorite observation or reflection of the entire convention came from Bishop Shannon Johnston from Virginia, who simply stated that if he were to put something in danger, he said, I'd rather it be a canon than a couple. I'd rather it be a canon than a couple. That one simple sentence sums up the gospel priority for people over things, people over laws, over words, people over reputations, over lofty ideals, people over vessels and vestments, people over everything. Our hope does not rest on our honor or reputation or words. We are to set our hope on Christ, on a person, in the words from Ephesians today. What a mess we've gotten ourselves into over the years, what wars and violence, what havoc and what unhealthy church life sometimes have been wreaked from staking claims that have no foundation in the only word we're bound to keep, the incarnate word, the word made flesh, the word that speaks only to the love and grace of God, lavished equally upon all. Regretfully, history only remembers Salome as a dancer at family birthdays, and we can only hope that she never asked her mother for advice again. But I digress. Today is about progress, about cultivating awareness where cooler heads prevail, it's about moving forward and being on the right side of history. This is cause for dancing, not on tables, but in the streets, where heads won't roll, but the good times will. It is, after all, summer. Amen.